Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, though they're arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. All right, folks, you're joining Bobo and Cliff at Bigfoot and Beyond, and tonight we have a special guest, Andy from over in Great Britain. He runs the Beasts of Britain website. Uh, he's written the books, Beasts of Britain. He has a podcast. What's your podcast? Beastly Things? Beastly Theories. Beastly Theories. Beastly Theories, yes. I just was a guest on there. What the hey, Andy? I thought you were my one and only. I found out you are running around behind my back with all these other podcasts over here uh. in America. <laughs> I, I thought I was going to be your first. I thought I was going to be special. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a polyamorous interviewee. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing all of them, yeah. <laughs> I do them all. do them all. Any shape and size. I don't even look and uh, to see what they look like most of the time. Well, you know that kind of fits in with your mo anyway, because you're you're not necessarily a Bigfoot guy or a lake monster guy, or you're like a cryptozoology guy. So really, you're polyamorous as far as cryptids go as well. Uh, you're not interested in just one thing. What what are the int- uh, the cryptids that you are most interested in? Because there are several, right? There's several. There's several. I mean, for me, my starting point was always lake monsters. That was my thing for a long time. And um, living in Great Britain, you know, we have Nessie and, and numerous other lake monsters around the place uh, in Scotland, but also in other parts of the country and around the coast. And I was always collecting clippings of those guys. And I started spreading my wings when I started looking into this book, Beast of Britain, a bit more and writing it. And I found lots of things, you know, dogmen, demon dogs, black shook, uh, strange flying cryptids like pterosaurs and the Owlman and, and the Bat Beast of Kenton and various other things. And uh, big cats as well, sea serpents, you know, it was a lot of things, including the British Bigfoot, which is, you know, is a very controversial uh, subject in this country and worldwide. But we do seem to have something of that nature, you know, roaming around here in, um, in our green and pleasant land. Have you seen a footprint cast ever from a Bigfoot in Britain? I've never seen a footprint cast. Um, I have seen several photographs of footprints, and I, I would say that they're they're quite ambiguous. I spoke to Jeff Meldrum about this, and he talked about the the Almas or Almasti footprint with this um, this arch and this wide footprint that has an arch in it, and. Our footprints, or at least the bare footprints that we have um, recorded in this country, seem to have that shape to them. And the reports of many of the Bigfoot-like creatures seem to be smaller anyway. Um, and North American Sasquatch around about the, the six-foot mark to seven-foot mark, or, or even smaller than that. So it's quite strange. And I often wondered if it does have this man-like footprint or whatever the Almasti is supposed to be, an Neanderthal or whatever. If it does have this type of footprint, maybe we see them all the time, but we just don't pay any attention to them because they don't look any different to our own, apart from maybe in size. They're not 18 inches 
No, I'd say 11, 14. I've heard of one described it as 20 inches, but that was never recorded. I'm, I'm dubious as to, to whether that was measured properly. One of the significant things here, actually, and talk to people like Deborah Hatswell from the British uh, Bigfoot Research Group or people you would know like Neil Young and others around the country. It's really, we're about 50 years behind you guys. There isn't really any um, significant uh, search going on. There's people in ones and twos starting to look around the country, trying to figure out what they should be looking for. But half the time, people don't even have casting material with them or even you know, insulating foam or anything or something to, to use as uh, for scale. So there's something we're trying to get the guys who are interested in these groups into now. You know, take some insulating foam and some cardboard board, uh, cardboard out with you. You know, some little strips just in case you find something. You don't have to carry anything heavy around with you. Or take a ruler at least, or tape measure. And right. if you find something, we can we can find out if it's significant. So we've got some footprints. I'm I'm 50-50 on them. What do you think is the most likely cryptid you guys have? that you're most certain is there, uh, like a flesh and blood? Flesh and blood, I would say the, the lake monsters. Flesh and blood, I'm almost 100% convinced about Nessie. Um, I have researched that in correlation with the other lochs and lakes uh, in Scotland, lakes around the UK and uh, other animals like um, Bone Nessie of Lake Windermere in Cumbria or Teggy of uh, Lynn Tegid in North Wales, all have a similar plesiosaurid description to them. That is at least most of the people that had have had um, a very intricate or descriptive look at the creature have described something that seems to fit a plesiosaur. Now, you know, we all think plesiosaur living on into our on one epoch, that seems quite a possibility. But if you look around the world and you correlate the details from those sightings, with those of Nessie and other British lake monsters, you get a pretty good photo fit. You know, people are seeing the same types of things all over the place. So that's the number one. I think we possibly definitely, definitely have a known animal. Second would be an out of place animal, the big cats, which is um, a phenomenon that, that's recorded very, very frequently. They're filmed, they're photographed, they're seen constantly. And we have an origination point for when they actually came into the country as well. Black leopards. Yeah, melanistic leopards and, and pumas or mountain lions, if you like. They seem to be the two most commonly reported big cats in the country. And you said you have a starting point of when they first came or you do not? We do. We do. You do. So we, Tell we us do. about that. Well, in 1976, which was the year I was born, um, we had something introduced into the country called the Dangerous Wild Animals Act, which regulated the way in which you had to keep any wild or exotic, especially dangerous animals like cobras and crocodiles and poisonous spiders and big cats. And the licenses were expensive. The conditions you had to keep the cats in were then awkward or difficult. And lots of people in the countryside had had, had them for years as status symbols. And in Ireland, in fact, there's the situation over in the Republic of Ireland is still the same as what we had. People could just buy them. So over here, they introduced these licenses and I've spoken to people who know people who let them go or who used to own them and no longer own them after the period that this license came in. It would be very normal for these cats as they have um, kittens and a uh, cub, sorry, and um, and those cubs grow to, to move out and out and get a bigger and bigger territory because of the solitary nature that they have and this wide dispersion that they, they would have to 
um, they would have to undertake, you know, to propagate their species. And I think that's why they spread across the country. Now, we're not talking one or two or three being released, but, but many. And even some zoos and wildlife parks losing some from time to time and saying, well, let's just keep it on the down low and not tell anybody it escaped. Hmm. Have you uh, recovered any footprints of those animals? Yes, there's lots of big cat footprints around. They're disputed. Now, the British government is very, very wise, I think. And I think this is a very British thing to do. So they don't really dispute that there may be big cats in the country. They just don't make any comment. But all of the local police forces, if you put in an FOI, will give you lots and lots of big cat sightings. And they they tend to make the papers, newspapers here very regularly, you know, maybe once or twice a month, sometimes less, every year, every single year. So we have hundreds upon hundreds of sightings. I, I personally know, um, I have four people, personally know four people that, that have seen them who are friends and family members. And one sighting that actually pulled me into this big cat thing in 1999 actually took place in a place called Crimach, which is in uh, West Wales, near the Priscilla Mountains. And I was staying at, with an ex-girlfriend at her, her family's farm there. It's about five miles away from the, the neighbours. You know, that's the kind of neighbourhood it, it is. And her mum had friends up from London. One was a heavy smoker. So we were all there. We were all asleep. And she went out at five in the morning to have a cigarette on the, the veranda on the patio. And, and just to picture the scene, you have this little patio. And then there's just about, you know, 20 acres from there going out. It's forested and apple orchards and, and different things. They have some goats and llamas and things too. And uh, she lit her cigarette in the dark and saw a panther. She called it a black panther staring at her about 10 feet away, just looking at her for about 10, 15 seconds. And then it turned and walked away. And she was astonished. Yeah, And it wasn't the only sighting that the sister of the, the girl I was dating, she'd seen one while she was horse riding over the mountain. And that was the thing. It kind of pulled me in a hook. I mean, thought, oh my goodness, are there big cats in this country? And from that point onwards, I've just discovered hundreds and hundreds. You could write several books, just filled the sightings. There's so many. Have any photographs ever sur surfaced of these things? Yes, yes. I mean, the, the most famous one would be the Beast of Bodmin Moor. That's one that's quite regularly um, put out there. There are lots of photographs. There have been quite a few bits of film of these animals as well. Some one even taken by a policeman who filmed one of these big cats a bit thing back in 2015. I yeah, I saw that. Walking down a railway track, and it seems to be like that. We've discussed in some of our groups, the same with the perhaps the British big, but but the especially with the British big cats, we've discussed quite regularly the green corridors that lots of animals use to get around the UK. There's large cave systems. There's lots of railway cuttings through the countryside, and disused and old railway and paths and rivers and things that these animals can just move about in. Now, talking about big cats, I'll just give you one sighting that was reported directly to me by a lady, um, and I talk about this one frequently because it, it's a good qualification. She was a horse breeder and she lives in Hampshire, which is just above the county of Surrey here where, where I am in South England. And um, she went to get a hay consignment one night. So the way that works is there's a farm, you, you pay a monthly fee, nobody's there. You just drive in, you pick up your hay and you leave. That's, that's how it works. She went November 2017, she drove in, she had her, you know, her four by four. She was with a friend, chucked the hay onto the back of the, um, the truck. And just as she was going to leave, in the full beams of the headlights, they see 
a male panther. She said she saw it close enough to see it was male. She's five foot eight. She said it was waist height, four foot long with a three foot tail. She saw it lick its face and she said it was very heavily muscled. Walked towards them, maybe for 20, 25 feet, and then just sauntered off into a bush as if there was no issue. You know, it was very, very relaxed. And she contacted me saying, somebody said I should contact you. Has there been an escape of some kind from a wildlife park or a zoo? I've just seen this panther. I said, oh, they're everywhere. I've spoken to a farmer also uh, in, in, in Yorkshire up north who's seen several um, coming in and out of certain bushes where he thought they had cubs. And, and one particular one, again, when he was baling hay with his tractor for his, his livestock, he saw it walk straight past his, his tractor, said he could reach that and touched it. And it was hunting rabbits. That field had a lot of rabbits in it. And they're just around. They're doing their thing. Mostly they stay out of the way. And occasionally people see them. Yeah, it's kind of the story of most cryptids, I suppose, isn't it? Mm. Just kind they of don't want to be around thing. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't even want to be around it. It's, no. Remember Moneymaker went through that big phase on black hats in Britain? Remember that clip where he was, he was telling us and showing us all the pictures? And, you yeah. Remember that? When we went to the UK, you mean, right? And and afterwards, yeah, he was all obsessed with black cats in Britain. He showed me every picture and video clip, and and I I read a bunch of stuff on it too. I mean, I've I've went through your whole website, Andy, and I've looked at other oh. stuff over the years, and yeah, I I think they're they're there. I mean, I read those reports about horses being attacked and sheep, and mm. the and it looks just like a mountain lion attack over here. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of them, you can see the teeth marks on, on the sheep. And the problem is, in qualifying these things, we have, we have, I think it's something like 33 to 34 million sheep in this country, most of which graze wild. Now, in Wales, where I come from, originally, there's 10 million sheep to 3 million people in that population. That's the kind of difference you have. And you have lots of dog attacks on the sheep every year. You know, people walking their dogs and dogs just attacking them. So, I think a lot of these attacks or a lot of this predation is just brushed off as, as dog attacks because the farmers, they lose so many sheep to, you know, to people not taking care of their dogs or not watching them whilst they're, they're going around the countryside. Uh, but I think that the number could be quite high, but even excluding sheep, we've got a lot of deer, including a really invasive and destructive uh, in deer species like Sika deer and Munjak deer uh, roaming the country as well. And 33 plus million rabbits, you know, loads of game and fowl and eeks, eeks of, of um, small animals that don't have any real predators to prey upon them. So I think mostly they could leave sheeps alone, uh, sheep alone for the most part and, and still have a lot to eat. So you have no native cat species over there then? We've got a Scottish wildcat, which is, I mean, it looks like a silver tabby for all intensive purposes. And it's quite large, maybe not as um, large as a savannah cat, the, you know, the, um, the civil domestic breed, but it's, it's a good size, but they're, they're really rare, almost extinct. And they've been trying to breed and reintroduce them in Scotland. I've actually seen one down here in Surrey, strangely enough, and they're not supposed to be here. Um, but that's, I mean, it's not even the size of a lynx. It's very, very small. So uh, going down the list of other cryptids, uh, uh -huh. wh which other cryptids are kind of a gray area? You're not so sure they're there, but you're going to keep an open mind about it. I would say the flying cryptids is one of the ones that's quite 
difficult for me. Now, there's various types that have been seen over the years. Now, the most famous one is the Owl Man of Mornan, uh, which was described in the you know the 1970s, first seen by two children. And now Mornan is a place in in Cornwall. It's um, Cornwall's in the far southwest of England. It's a little peninsula that juts out just beneath Wales and goes into the Atlantic. And it's it gets some of the Gulf Stream. So the, the environment there can be quite different. You can get palm trees and, and different things like that. And it's a lovely sort of beach surfer kind of environment. A lot of, a lot of surfers live there, actually. And um, it's a beautiful, very rural place. Anyway, it has some big cats and it has some other sightings. But this particular owl man, uh, it was spotted several times with different people, the 70s onwards. Now, it's supposed to be um, kind of a five to six foot tall gray brown owl uh, with feathers and a wingspan 10 feet across, bipedal with red glowing eyes. And it's said to emit a, a screeching or a, a hissing noise. It has allegedly been seen by these two young girls uh, initially who went to the police. They were tourists there and they took them one into a, each into a separate room and they drew the same kind of picture of this animal with these pincer-like claws. Um, seen later again by a, a group of friends walking down a country lane perched upon a, you know, sort of a, a limb of a tree and it, they thought somebody was in a suit making a joke at them and it just took off making this hissing sound. To me, that's, you know, that's a fantastical creature, something like the Mothman almost. Um, it's, I, I have trouble with it because Tony Doc Shields, the, um, you may have heard of him, was very involved in Loch Ness sightings back in the seventies, some self-proclaimed wizards of the West and huh. traveling con man, so to speak, who, <laughs> you know, he's been behind, he's also allegedly behind the Morgauer picture, uh, uh, in, in the West in Cornwall. He lived in this area. Now he was also collecting sightings around this time. He collected one in Loch Rhee of a similar photograph of a monster um, that a friend of his took a picture of. So uh, he's, he's the one who's actually famed for the Nessie Muppet head. I don't know if you've ever seen that, the greenish kind of Nessie head with a small face and um, pink tongue, this kind of strip below the neck, this, this white strip. And everybody thought it was a, a fake. And, you know, he was, how can I put it? Having him involved in these sightings gives me the feeling that they're not really real. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And um, that just to put it politely, <laughs> neatly. Um, well, yeah. Just because we don't believe somebody doesn't mean we have to be rude about it after all. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he was very involved in cryptozoology and John Downs, who's the, um, who's the head of the, the uh, center for fortune zoology in the UK for the last 27 years, counts him as a mentor, counts him as a, you know, a great influence on the work he's done. And it can't be denied that the CFC have done some fantastic work in cryptozoology around the world. So you have to wonder, you know, is it my personal prejudice against his reputation or is he actually just some kind of fraudster? Don't know. Um, so some of the flying ones are a bit difficult. I also find, and we talked about this when we met in Kentucky, I remember, I find the dog man, the werewolf to be a difficult one, even though there's so much history and there's actually quite a few modern sightings. It's just, it's a tough cookie to swallow for people like you or I who are looking to point a finger into the fossil record of what we're searching for. Yeah, you know, that's the thing that's always bothered me with uh, Dogman or a lot of the other cryptids. Oddly enough, I, I took a report of one of these owl things myself just last year. 
um, wow. up in Washington state, about a seven foot tall, you know, feather covered thing hmm. with wings, you know, on the side of the road. Um, yeah. So I, any of these things I have trouble with because I don't see the ecological niche for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also just no physical evidence like casts or anything like that, yeah. you know, footprints. Yeah. When without those things, I'm not saying that they're not real because, you know, I know two excellent witnesses for the dog man, mm-hmm. um, that I don't, I'm confident they're not lying to me. Um, just, I'm not so sure it's a biological thing. I don't have an explanation for it because, mm. you know, I, I'm mostly interested and focused upon the biological realities. Same. In the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a paranormal guy, you know, um, but who knows, man, I, I, I'm not going to say I know that these things are or are not because I frankly don't. And I think a lot of times I don't know is the most honest answer you can give. I then I'm, I'm totally with that. I've reported them in, in my book simply because they appear to behave like animals in the experiences that people have had here with them. Um, I haven't been able to pick out any paranormal aspects to what people here have seen for the most part. And I think, well, okay, I'm looking at the fossil record. I'm trying to find something that relates to that. But then in my mind, that's in my prejudice. In fact, I'm looking at the fossil record as though it's complete. We know that's not the case. So, you know, we're still finding, you know, other forms of man and all these different things like Denisovans and these tiny little, you know, um, finger bones and skull caps that are giving us information about different types of uh, animals and people over time. So I'm keeping my mind open as well. But the one thing that struck me about something like this werewolf of Campbell, Campbell that we had, or the whole werewolf, especially in 19, uh, sorry, in 2016, um, of which there's many stories in the past. There were several sightings during that whole two-week period, I said all of the witnesses, they they delivered their sighting in exactly the same way a Bigfoot witness would. would. It was a matter of fact. There were mundane details. You know, they, they found it difficult to believe what they had seen, and they were reticent to talk about it. You know, in the same way, they weren't out seeking fame and glory in, a, in this country, especially. You're not going to get that with a sighting like this. You might, <laughs> you might lose yeah. a couple of friends, perhaps, and even you know, even, even might be detrimental to your, your career in some way. You'd lose face, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. You sure learned who your friends really are pretty quick anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, if I wasn't into this, Cliff, I'd be thinking, okay, Cliff's come to me and, and you wouldn't, Cliff, the big guy, and he's he's seen some sort of dog creature. I'd be talking to, to Boba, and he's seen some kind of dog creature. But, but what, is Cliff okay is he, no. is he having problems? No. Yes. And you would say no, of course. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm great. <laughs> That's the first sign of mental illness. You start by feeling great. For me, that was about the third sign. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now again, going down the cryptid list, uh, yeah. what gets reported there that you're confident is just rubbish. Now this, this is also a pet peeve of mine. Um, so the most thing I'm the thing I'm most confident of is rubbish. Your at least is not evidence of anything are stick signs, stick signs and rock piles. Now that's not to say that Bigfoot don't you know, pile rocks or make stick signs of any kind. But as the old saying goes, and I said this to to us the other day, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, did Bigfoot push it down, or do trees just fall in the forest? And um, we find that they do. And a lot of our forests are close together and they're overgrown and we have erratic weather. Stuff just falls into certain spaces and bushcrafters go and make little huts and hunters make blinds. 
And even kids go and mess around with sticks and do all kinds of things with them. I do not believe, and I'm frustrated to look at pages and pages of pictures of sticks and sticks and sticks and get emails about sticks constantly. The, the, you know, the forest people have been here again. Look, sticks. That, I think, is complete rubbish. At least, unless you're out in the wilds of Scotland somewhere, up on a mountain or up in some dark forest that nobody ever goes to, and then you find a little hut, you know, rudely made, um, full of odd stray hairs. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and footprints maybe that's it now i know it's not nothing but it's not evidence in itself no yeah i have that i have that same problem and i'm one of the few bigfooters i think that i'm out, is out there saying don't jump on the stick structure thing no. guys because uh, there's because no. my my whole deal and maybe we spoke about this when we hung out in kentucky uh my whole deal is that um yeah okay maybe they do this you know because these things do appear in peculiar mm. places but of all the other behaviors that we hypothesize Sasquatches indulge in, um, there are at least a handful, a couple, two, one or two, three sighting reports of them doing it. Mm. We have sighting reports of them screaming. We have sighting reports of them throwing rocks. Mm. We have sighting reports of them knocking on trees with mm. sticks and clapping and doing all these other things. And to my knowledge, no one has brought forth a sighting report of a Sasquatch making a teepee structure or something like that in the woods. Not one person that I'm aware of. And I, I've spoken to more than your average number of witnesses, I would mm -hmm. think oh, is yeah. safe to say. Um, and there's just not... And, and that, to my knowledge, there's no good footprints or footprint casts taken in correlation with these structures. So mm -hmm. until there is one, sure, I'll keep an open mind, but I'm not willing to say that these are Bigfoot related at all. And I'm probably the outlier there because most other Bigfooters totally jump on that bandwagon. And I think it has something to do with uh, the positive reinforcement mm. um, involved in going into yes. the woods and finding peculiar things. And like, <laughs> I'm looking for Bigfoot stuff. I found some Bigfoot stuff yeah. that gives me a, the endorphin rush I'm looking for. And it's easy to get. They've been seen carrying branches and chunks of log though. And that is that, true. That photo from Oklahoma, uh, from New Mexico, it's carrying a big, long oak branch. That's true. That, that that there are there is a photograph of the one them doing that. They've been seen doing that, uh, but not making things out of it. And that's where I'm not willing to go that extra step until there's at least a, a couple. It, with the prevalence of stick structures, there should be at least a dozen or more sighting reports of these things making them, and there just simply isn't. Yeah. This is. I mean, anybody. Sorry, Bob. You couldn't. What do you think about the the stick structures? Uh, I think a lot of them are man-made or natural, but I also mm. think there's plenty that are made by them. I'm I'm convinced they do it. Mm. Mm. I don't think they use them for shelter. I mean, people say like, oh, I found where it lives. I found where it lives. I think I think they'll construct hunting blinds, and if they do those teepee ones, but some of those ones you see like big trees interwoven. I know wind can do crazy stuff, but mm. some of that stuff you'll see like trees interwoven, like you know, and then like a a big boulder over the, holding down the tips of like a couple different like pine saplings mm -hmm. or something or doesn't seem like a human could do that and then there's the stuff like where uh those archways i've seen this myself in person where the sticks were jammed into the ground and crossed an x over a game trail uh -huh. Uh -huh. like well, i don't see how a human could do that and that's the kind of thing i think that we need to be looking for so i think that kind of stick structure that's valid and um what i was talking to a guy here christopher turner he did it like a bigfoot documentary in britain called elusive and I was talking to him about it and he said the problem with it is is that unless you're in a, an area where there is no um, human activity or 
you're looking at some sort of stick structure that a human could not make. Everything else just makes us look bad when we say, oh, Bigfoot. And as Cliff says, I do believe it gives you, you know, the, the feeder pellet when you go into the forest and go, oh, look, this is unusual. Something that happens here in the UK with stick structures. And we have these, I, uh, I was in a little forest here in Isha, in Surrey, a really tiny forest, but it leads out to the motorway and down to the, you know, the, um, the south downs. So it leads, there's a green corridor. And we saw at night, me and a friend there, John, we saw many stick structures. And we also saw one tiny pinned arch that was actually held up with some sticks underneath it. And there was a piece of wood over the, the pinned arch. And the bottom of the wood, uh, the, the tree under the, the the wood that was holding it down had grown flat. It'd been there like that long. And I thought this is very interesting. And somebody explained to me, and there's, there's a large Irish gypsy presence in our area in Surrey, the countryside, that actually our gypsies leave stick signs in the forest for each other to tell each other where there may be fresh water or um, where other things may be or a good direction to go for hunting or rabbits. And they inhabit the countryside quite frequently and they leave these signs allegedly leave these signs around for each other and i thought that's very interesting you know could some of the first nations people do things like that as well in in the americas I, i'm not really sure but in this country i i would have to see something really impressive like well, like you were talking about yeah but the uk i mean i wasn't talking about the uk at all i was talking about you know pacific northwest or i mean oh, yes. i'd be highly dubious i mean unless i was way up in scotland Mm. I just, I mean, I, I, I find it hard to believe there are Bigfoot, like a physical, non-paranormal type hominid still living there. I mean, it could be like a, like, like you said, something with an arch, like a Neanderthal, something like that. I could see that possibly, but I mean, we were, we were only there for like less than a month uh-huh. and we went over there and filmed and but we went to like the hot spots and we went to the biggest forest in England, which mm. was still pretty small. And we went to Scott. We were in Scott. We were saying like, yeah, we could see it up there possibly. But then yeah. we talked to like the outdoors and up there and the search and rescue guys and hunting and tourism guys. They said they've never even seen it as much as a suspicious footprint up there. Mm-hmm. No, I know what you mean. And I, I think, I mean, for me, it was it was a surprising subject as well. The main surprise for me about the UK was the actual space and, and the way in which we inhabited. So um, I always joke that we're not really an off-the-path kind of people, and we've got very few wild campers. So for the most part, we're following trails. And when you get to Scotland, you know, you have to stick on the trails in that countryside because it's dangerous and it's very remote. And if you get stuck, you're really in trouble. Um, I think a lot of it to do is to do with if it is a real creature, if it is here, a lot of its viability is to do with the fact that, well, it would be adapted to us as the British people who've lived around it, uh, unlike the American Sasquatch, which is adapted to those types of environments that you have there and has more space to inhabit. Now, when I was speaking about this the other day, it said we have around about 500 sightings, more or less 500 sightings, this creature. Um, Somebody mentioned to me, well, that's not, you know, even as many as they've had in Washington. So that's actually a tiny amount. It's just a lot for your country. And then it struck a chord me and I thought, well, perhaps, yeah, perhaps we're looking at some tiny, tiny relic population that's living around the country in small patches. Now, even in this part here in the south of England, southeast of England, where I am, once you get five in the south of the city, it's just rolling you know, fields and hills and countryside and bits of forest 
lots of cattle, lots of animals, but the habitations are, are few and far between. So you probably heard me give these these uh, stats before, actually, but there was this uh, assessment that they did of the, the whole country in 2012. It was called the UK National Ecosystem Assessment. And they discovered that only 6.8% of the UK's entire land area could be classified as urban. That included the roads and the rural de developments as well. Sorry, I can't say rural. And um, then he broke the figures down amongst the four you know, primary nations, Scotland, England, Wales, and the Northern Ireland. And they found it was something like 10.6% of England was urban, 1.9% of Scotland, which is nothing really, 3.6% of Northern Ireland and 4.1% of Wales. That's 93% of the entire country is not urban. And yet if we're on in the cities, if we're traveling down a couple of roads, we may feel, especially here on the outskirts of London, you just feel like there's just people everywhere. But when you get out into the wilds, there is nobody. So in my opinion, if this creature is local, it only really needs isolation and food. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. I mean, uh, um, what, what we, like, as Bobo mentioned, we spent less than a month. We were there for about two, maybe two and a half weeks, I think, when we were over there doing the Finding Bigfoot episode. Um, and I was struck by the, the, the countryside, just how vast it is. And mm. it did remind me a lot of the areas that we've seen here in the United States that do, in fact, hold Sasquatches, where perhaps they'd be unexpected. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of farmland and things like that, you know, these estates and whatever, a lot of private land sort of thing. Um, but when uh, what what impressed me most is when I got up into Scotland, though. Um, Scotland does have the topography, oh, yeah. which, of course, increases the land surface area, which would increase the food availability. Um, oh, it's, yeah. A lot of it's very remote, nasty places to walk and whatever else. And, uh, <laughs> you know, people just, you know, midges and horrible things and like just that. just the and, cities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the cities are rad. I love them. <laughs> um, but, yeah, d d the, yeah, I would say Scotland is where I think there's the highest probability of there being a, a Sasquatch or something. Um, the thing that I would have problems with with that uh, – with, with anywhere, I guess, in the UK is um, the numbers of Sasquatches that would be necessary to keep a viable breeding population, especially when I consider the numbers in the United States to be very low. Like I, I, I think there's probably, you know, I, I kind of go with the Dr. Krantz assessment of about 100 bears for every one Bigfoot, um, which would imply that there's about 300, for example, in the state of Oregon, where I live. Okay. Um, which is a tremendous, we have the second highest number of forested acres of all 50 states, mm. but yet there's only about 50, or I'm sorry, about 300 Bigfoots in the entire state. Wow. Um, and uh, from what I understand, 300 is the number of a pop, uh, for a large mammal population where anything below that, you start getting into genetic difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, and that's based on, I think, cheetah populations, if I remember correctly. So uh, do you, would you have any speculation or guess on the number of Sasquatches that you think might inhabit the UK? I think it's I think it must be very low. Now, two things sort of bring these numbers home to me is that in the south here of England, there are many sightings uh, around not urban areas, but around areas that are close to urban areas. And I think part of the reason for that is just simply because there's more people in this part of the country. Sure. In Scotland, there's also a lot of sightings considering the amount of people who are there. But then a lot of people go to Scotland because it's a great place to hike and walk and, and investigate. There's lots of tourists. Wales doesn't have many. And in the middle of England, it has only a few as well. I actually think we might be looking at something like four or five hundred. If you think we've got five hundred individual sightings, that may not be of the same creature. Mm -hmm. And not everybody would report a sighting. 
I think it's a conservative level to say around 400 would be a good number, but I don't have any way of substantiating that complete guesswork. Um, I do think that there must be many more many more sightings than than people are reporting simply because uh, there's two reasons for that. Firstly, when people report sightings here, they don't ever usually say Bigfoot. They usually say something like it was a giant chimpanzee on two legs or it was a gorilla that was standing up or an orangutan with a flat face that walked upright like a man or this strange wild man that comes out a lot as well. Um, I think that lack of Bigfoot on the brain, is, as uh, your colleague used to term it, um, Renee, that's her name, isn't it? Yes, Renee, as she used to mention the Bigfoot on the brain thing, that lack of it is a good qualifier, but it also to me indicates that most people if they saw something like this would not report it or who would they report it to in fact because it's such an odd thing i think you'd just be laughed at for saying that you saw something and things are changing slightly these days you know there there was a an alleged bigfoot photo um in grimsby uh that was um posted by a bigfoot hunter uh, by all accounts which seems to just be really a a very cleverly taken picture of a dark forest with a fern sort of sticking up in the triangular motion that makes the figure, the, the branch above it or the tree above it look like a figure. And um, yeah, you get those things from time to time. I don't really know how to qualify, Cliff. I would like to say three and a half to 400, but I don't know. Maybe it's less. Maybe they are a, a species that's dying out or in very, very small numbers around the country. Hey, do you guys have a version of like a John Green or a Rene DeHinden, someone that's like you consider a real expert on British Bigfoot that's spent a lot of years and has, you know, a lot of documented cases, maybe some behavioral patterns? Yeah, I, I think the best, best person for that. And she's actually created a, a great map would be Deborah Hatswell. She was a witness in the 1980s, oh, okay. actually. Yeah. And she, um, she actually saw... Uh, this creature in a in a country park estate uh, in Wheel Hill, which is in Salford, just on the outskirts of Manchester. And there were several sightings around this area, actually. And this thing, talking about the Green Man legend, actually, she said she made, she was 15 years old, she made eye contact with the bushes in this park. And suddenly this big, she said, demon or ape man leant out and looked at her. And she freaked out. She ran all the way home. And, um, you know, didn't leave the house for a few years, terrified. And then she started to try to search for other sightings to, I suppose, reconcile you know, what she'd seen. Um, there's a lot of sightings like that. I also know a guy I interviewed recently, called Mark, and he saw one as a teenager. And this was uh, when they were building some sort of fort in their, their weekend in, in a local forest. And um, I think this is up north as well, somewhere around the, the, the Manchester area. And this thing, which was only about five foot tall, covered in thick hair, they said it was the hair was so thick around the head they couldn't even see the face, came out into the path in front of them and let out such a deep growl that it hit them in the chest. And these boys, they ran, they fled from the forest. You know, it was really that significant. They had lots of, lots of sightings like that, where the creatures have, you know, confronted people or they've become angry and having their space invaded. Lots of sightings with children, uh, no less as well, which I think is, is quite significant. I'll give you one in Scotland, actually, while, while we're on the subject of Bigfoot, without laboring the point too much. You may have heard me talk about this one. So a friend of mine, primate keeper of 37 years, he was up in Strathspey Forest in um, 
in Scotland. It's part of the old Caledonian forest. And he was hunting there with his brother, like, like with air guns. They were hunting for rabbits on these little wild camping holidays that they used to do together. And um, they're walking you know, one morning through the bushes there, and it's a really wild area. And he, his brother's got a really heavy step. He can't hear him anymore. And he looks back to, to see where he is. And he just sees his mouth is hanging open. He's staring off into the, you know, into the distance. It turns around to look at what it is. And he's looking at a big black creature, which seems to be hunched over over some kind of blackberry bush eating. And now this guy, Hal, he's about five foot two. He's not very, not very tall. He said the creature was about his height hunched over. Then it stands up, turns around and looks at him. And it's about seven to eight feet tall. And he, as a primary keeper, I, I would imagine this guy's supremely qualified to make an, an assessment of what he's seeing. He said it was about four feet across the shoulders, longer hair on the forearms and on the chin. It didn't have much hair on the chest and face. The skin was really dark and it was balding on top. He thought it looked a bit like an old bonobo chimp, but with a, like a very flat muzzle. And it just terrified the life out of him. He made a funny comment to me, which I thought was either because he's a primate keeper or significant since he is one, which was he was convinced that what he saw was a primate, but one he'd never seen before. Yeah, that's the best. I've read over 200 reports of, you know, alleged Bigfoot settings in the UK. And mm -hmm. that to me was the most compelling yeah. story. Yeah, whenever you have an expert in anything saying something within their line of expertise, within their field, mm -hmm. um, that, that really, I think, um, challenges, or should challenge the skeptics to explain that away. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Even, and even if it's in an unlikely place like the UK, because, you know, I think we're all in agreement that the UK is fairly unlikely, but yet there are reports out of there. So what do you do with that? I think you listen and you uh, do, you, you look for patterns, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need evidence, essentially. What we're, all I'm planning to do um, via the page and in conjunction with the British Bigfoot Research Group and others around the country is to just put little guides out on casting and, um, and you know, taking measurements of footprints or, or the kinds of things you can look for. You know, because a lot of our country is, it's got thick grass and all heavy leaf litter. And it's actually hard to get prints in most of the land because it's, you know, that, as I said, the green and pleasant land, everything is really lush and not many opportunities for footprints. But there are junctions, you know, and muddy farm paths and little areas where you could definitely pick something up beaches for example i imagine that uh, bare feet on on a beach would be ignored most of the time but if you see a footprint about 14 or 15 inches long even if it looks like a human print of the beach it's worth taking a look to see yeah. what you're uh, yeah you're 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 staring at so i think if we can encourage some of the brits here to get involved and, and start you know, being a little bit scientific or taking like little, you know, um, little bags out with you and tweezers and gloves. So if you find weird hairs, you can stick them away without contaminating them, things like that. Yeah, because, you know, even here in America, that's uh, that, that's kind of how it's how it started. You know, there were stories of these things and but it took footprint casts to really get the the ball rolling on the science side of things. Um, and that's true for Bob Titmus because he was he said, oh, yeah, I've heard stories about big footprints, but I've never seen one here. Jerry Crew, here's some plaster. Go get that thing. And sure enough, it was something that Bob Tippis, a taxidermist at the time, had never seen. Or John Green, for that matter. You know, John Green drove down because he heard stories about these footprints in Bluff Creek. He drove down to California from British Columbia, where he lived, and he saw the footprints for himself um, and started taking casts. It's the evidence that's going to turn mm. some heads and open I some minds. So. Yeah, I yeah. So it's time for uh, 
for the, the, the good folks across the pond to step up to the plate. They you know? have to step up. I can't do it by myself. <laughs> no, and you know, and sound lazy. <laughs> yeah. Those and, lazy and, Brits. And whether lazy we're Brits. talking about the UK or the United States, um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not winning any popularity contests today with my six structures and now this, this statement, but like stories are not good enough. It's time to get off our no. laurels and do something about it. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about anecdotal evidence is it, I said, um, what I say about uh, reports, Bigfoot reports is um, they're not proof, but they are evidence. Yeah. So that's what it is. So you think, yes, so great. We've got 500 plus reports. That's fantastic. We've got a few ambiguous footprints that we're, we haven't quite qualified. So there's, there's some evidence. Let's go and find some proof. Yeah, well, proof, unfortunately, is not footprints either. No, I know. Fair. Yeah, proof is a dead one. Um, and there's really no way around that at this point, unfortunately. Yeah. But, I mean, how do you, Cliff, uh, and Bobo as well, I want to ask you both this question. How do I, I know you specialize in, in the foot morphology too, and Jeff Meldrum spoke to me about this as well. You know, he was first um, drawn into this game by finding footprints, right? And that's one of his specialities. He was in the prime position to judge what he was looking at. And yet, Nobody can accept this as any kind of evidence. Where are the footprints coming from, if not from this large bipedal um, hominid? To take it even further than that, it's like, uh, why are they internally consistent in the data yes. sets? And why do they show features that we now recognize um, are perfectly normal hominin features? And I'll say, uh, uh, you know, it, just ape features in general, you know, the, the flexibility in the mid part of the foot and all that other stuff. Like, the, the footprints, you can look at them all the way back to the very first known one, which is from 1958. They all have that flexibility in the mid part of their foot exactly where it should be. But yet it wasn't even published until 2001, I think, is when Dr. Meldrum yeah. put out his paper. But go. yet, how could it possibly be that they're all internally consistent exactly the way they should be based on ape anatomy? You know, for 40 years before it was even brought to the public's attention that this is true. I think that's a, a really good point. I, I don't know what you think about this as well, but on on casting prints and, and reporting things like Bigfoot sightings and Bigfoot evidence, and nobody gives you a special staff, right? You don't become uh, you don't become famous, as it were. You know, you put if you're just a general witness, you put these things in the paper. Nobody thanks you. You might get a little sub from the newspaper for your story, but that's it. You've got to live with being the guy who saw that thing afterwards, right? I don't know how how would you what would you advise people who are out there in the UK for example where where a more conservative nation what would you what would your advice be to them about their sightings and how to report them or how to conserve the evidence well if it's just a sighting report um i think that the the story is a start um i think taking a ton of photographs of the area, getting people mm -hmm. on the scene as soon as possible to look for signs of a large creature's passing, whether it's broken branches or pushed down grass or possible footprints, um, and getting there and documenting everything. And then this is the important part, or this is another important part, putting that evidence out there to be mm -hmm. To be henpecked and ridiculed by, uh -huh. you know, I'll say those two things, uh, henpecked and ridiculed, but really what we're talking about is peer review. We want yeah. other people to lay their eyes and ears and whatever else on on the evidence to see what they think. Um, and, and that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people, especially those who are convinced of what they have or have seen. Um, I just recently I was talking to a guy who has a recording and 
uh, and I send it to the guy I usually go to and the guy I usually go to for record. I'm not a sound guy. So I send it to a guy named Dave Ellis. Um, and he comes back and he says, yeah, well, I don't, I don't think there's really anything, anything there, you know, and, um, and maybe there is, maybe there's not, but I kind of warn people, I am happy to listen yeah. to whatever you want to send me. I'm, I'm happy uh-huh. to give you my opinion, but be very careful before you ask me, because one mm. thing I promise you is that I will tell you the truth mm. and, and you may not like it. I think this is, um, now there's, there's an aspect of this whole thing, cryptozoology, that's, um, a believer type of aspect. So I always say that it's a multi-denominational, uh, uh, science and that you have paranormalists and that you have real genuine scientists like yourself. And then you have believers, you have people have a religious point of view in this as well. And I've been talking to lots of these different people over, over the last few weeks. Now, for me, what I decided at the beginning of this year is I no longer want to be a believer in these things because being a believer um, uh, obfuscates the actual evidence that I'm looking for because I want it to be true. So now I just want to be a knower. And the best way to do that, apart from having a sighting, is to go and collect evidence. And as you say, document the scene and, and see what we can find out. And until that time, they are interesting and mysterious and entertaining stories about what may be here in the British Isles. And that's the way I've written it in the book. That's the best way to keep it. Because if you make no definite assertion, then people can you know, think about it themselves and make their own minds. Yeah. And really belief at the end of the day is thinking something is true despite a lack of evidence. Yeah. And at, at, at this point in the game, at least in North America, I think that that's holding us up. Um, yeah. I don't want people to believe in Bigfoot anymore. I want people to think that the evidence is compelling or know that they're real because they've had an, uh, a sighting or an experience that is unexplainable otherwise. But belief, that's for religion and politics, and I'm not really interested in either. So yes. let's let's get out of that that frame of mind and let's start doing something that is not subjective but objective. Go get the information and share it to see if you're wrong. And if you are wrong, celebrate it. And go back and see what you and see how you can twist and tweak your hypothesis to make it real, make it right. Yeah. In other words, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And um, now, Boba, you you're somebody who's seen Bigfoot. So, how do you feel sometimes being in the in the knower position? And when people report sightings to you that may not be, you know, 100% bona fide, or you know, they they may have mistaken something that they've seen for Bigfoot like right. there or, or, or something else. How do you, um, how do you work your way through that? How do you pick it out and say, actually, I think this guy's seen a bear or this guy's seen, you know, somebody in a ghillie suit. I've found, you know, from doing finding Bigfoot and when we did follow, like you'd hear at the town hall and you'd get impressions of people. You'd think like you got, okay, yeah. I got a pretty good read on this person. Then you get out there, you spend a day or two with them. Like, you know, we'll spend all day and go to their setting location with them. And, and then, you know, you might by the end of the day go, this guy's kind of nuts. Yeah. Or or you might be like, this guy's, you know, way on point. And yes. And so the more time you spend with the witness, I like, and then going to the actual location, seeing like what kind of, you know, how obscured was their sighting, like what was the lighting like? No matter what, when someone tells you a story, you mentally paint a picture of where that event took place. Like, and then when you go there, it's never the same. <laughs> So I like to get out there with the person to the spot, yeah. go stand, go stand where they said they saw it. They can compare me to the size, and then I'll, I'll go over there and they'll say, well, "This is where I saw it," and I'll look and see would it make sense for a large predator 
you know, that's shy to be in this point. Like, why would it be in this spot if it was in this spot? Going to the spot, I can't overemphasize how great that is. And it really sheds so much light because there, there have been times where I thought somebody was telling me a, a good Bigfoot story. And then I go there and I realize that, okay, this guy doesn't even, he's not even describing this, the scene here. He wasn't really here. Okay. This was a, probably a lie and the opposite where I'm thinking this guy or whoever is, is probably full of it, but going to the site with the person, then things start making sense. And you go, yeah. Oh, that's what, that's what you meant. Because what people forget sometimes um, is that when you're hearing a story, um, you are many steps re- removed from the, the reality of the situation by these filters. Um, how good of an observer is the witness? How, how good of a command over with the language, the English language does this witness have at conveying what they experienced? And then how good of a listener are you? And how good are you at, are you at interpreting what they're trying to say? There, and there's several other filters in between you and the experience as well. And all of those filters take the, take some information out or twist it in some way, uh, to, to obscure true understanding of the events. Um, and going to the spot sometimes removes a little bit of those filters and like, Oh, I said it was a bush, but it was a tree. It's that one right there. You uh, know, that's what, that's why, Oh, and these things start becoming more clear. So Bob was absolutely correct. Going to the spot. Um, you should always go to the spot if at all possible. Yeah. With the witness. Cause for one thing, yeah. it's hard because they'll tell you, Oh, you, you just go there. You'll see where it was this and that. And then it's rare now that I'll go somewhere with the witness is not going to go with me because they'll tell you where to look. Like oh, I thought I saw prints and then it's almost impossible to figure out what they were talking about. Exactly. And then I'm, oh, where exactly? Yeah. And then I also am way, way, way more dubious about vocalization reports. Like I heard this thing, it could only have been a Bigfoot and, mm-hmm. and, or if someone says they hear them every night or all the time, every time I've gone to check that out, it's been coyotes or barred owls, but almost, almost always coyotes. So I'm way more skeptical. I mean, there's some people I'll believe their sound reports, you know, the, because they're very experienced, they're outdoors people, and what they're describing couldn't be anything else. But um, I'm more skeptical than I used to be. I used to believe everybody because I had a sighting, and you know most people don't believe you, and it's kind of frustrating. You're like, are you just telling what you saw? Mm. You know, and and so I, I used to tend to like just believe a lot more people. I was pretty gullible, I guess, because I knew they were real. So I I was you know so so when they saw one, I wasn't gonna just go, oh, you're lying. No, and I think that's that's a tendency then to if you've had an experience and somebody says they've had the same experience to you, you have an autom and you've not been believed. That's you have an automatic defense of that person making the claim because you think, well, I've been in your spot. You know, I know what it's like to see something and not be believed. I don't think that's gullible. It's more relating, you know, to what's been what's been told to you and and trying to to make it easy for that witness to come out. I've been told some things recently. I, I'm pretty good at psychologically reading the person that I'm talking to. And um, I've had a few recently that have been a bit dubious and I'm picking other things out. And the questions are polite, but slightly searching. And could you possibly tell me this and tell me that? And, you know, had you been any, under any stress at the time? And then, you know, this whole stream of stress comes out, all these things that have been happening to them. And you start to unravel what's going on and saying, okay, this person's in a highly stressed state. Um, had a lot of problems and then suddenly they think that they've seen something is it real it doesn't mean you know you could have mental health problems and still see something like drones all over the place yes like exactly like that kind of thing so you you know there's always some sort of 
conspiracy angle to it all. Something's just not, you know, the red flags are just popping up, aren't they, all the way along. For some reason, you can feel it. I think it's, I'll, I'll give you an example of this, actually, perhaps a poor example. Um, in the previous house that we lived in to this one, it was a flat, actually, um, here in Surrey. And me and my wife, we'd been out late one night and we're coming back down our street, a very quiet street. I could see a guy walking up the street slowly, about 50 yards away. And yet, even though he was walking, he felt like he was unusual, like he shouldn't have been there or he had no purpose in his walk. And as I got to the house and I walked forward, I saw him double back behind us to go to the back of the house. It was like a little driveway there. And I thought, he's up to something. And I quickly ran in and sure enough, somebody was trying to get in the back window. Now, he didn't really do anything to um, trigger my my suspicion other than in his mind, he had no purpose as to where he should be going. And that I picked up that up in his body language, even though he was just a regular guy walking. Maybe a strange anecdote, but a strange example. But, it, you know, it was clear to me. And I think you can feel that with the witnesses, too. You start to get the feeling, and you guys obviously have much more experience than me. I, I don't know if you agree with this. You start to get the feeling that there are red flags, even though they haven't been revealed to you yet. You got to trust your gut on a lot of this stuff. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and you know Sorry. what, in uh, Bobo, in your defense to yourself, um, also, you know, you're, you're not a liar. Um, and like myself, like I, I don't, I don't tend to lie. So I tend to believe people because what I've learned about people is that they always see themselves in other people. Yeah. You, wherever you look, you only see yourself. Um, mm. you judge other people by what you kind of are. Um, you can see the politicians lying and be like, he's a liar. He's a, this, he's a, that That's because they're, they're talking about themselves at the end of the day, yeah. you know? And, um, so, uh, people, truthful people, I think come with a disadvantage because we're going to tend to believe people. And I've just kind of accepted this at that point where like, I, I'm a, I'm a generally truthful person. So I assume other people are as well. And maybe I'm naive for that, which is fine because at the end of the day, we're talking about cytic reports, which is not objective data. It's mm -hmm. a very soft form of evidence at best. Um, the filter thing and, you know, interpretations and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's a soft form of evidence at best. And the only real use, I think, of this sort of data is statistical uh, use of, um, oh, there's six or seven reports from this general area. There's probably one in that area. You know, people didn't know each other and stuff. So um, at the end of the day, I think those outliers, the people who are in fact lying for whatever, um, you know, uh, mental illness they have. And I do think it has a lot to do with mental illnesses mm. um, of other people lying and making these things up. You know, yeah. they think I'm, cra I, they think I'm crazy for looking for Bigfoot and they're coming to me to lie to me about it. I think that makes <laughs> them even crazier, honestly. Um, those outliers will probably be uh, shoved to the side statistically. Mm -hmm. um, over time, because at this point we have tens of thousands of sighting reports, oh, yeah. um, a handful of these, you know, these psychopathic people who are looking to inconvenience and hurt others like, uh, like us, the Bigfoot researchers, their data will probably just fall to the side. But it's like the fake footprints as well. I mean, overall, when you put them next to all of the genuine footprints, it's really easy to see which ones are fake. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. yeah once so you, once you get them in the in the group of of all of the uh, the footprints or the group of all of the sightings, you can pick one out and say well, that one doesn't seem genuine. That doesn't seem real. You know, right. this person's put all of the components they thought they should put in place to make this a sighting, and yet it's two by the numbers, oh, or whatever else. 
Yeah, yeah, they're just too. I mean, studying the fake ones, you know, the LB tracks, London tracks, and all that stuff. Studying the the hoaxes that have been perpetrated on me personally mm. that I fell for for by you know I'm I'm not I'm not some you know infallible footprint mm. god or something. No one, not not even Meldrum. Um, we've all been hoaxed, and we all buy the hoaxes at least for a little while. And mm. so we figure it out, you know, and it took me months to figure out the London thing, for example, you know, um, but those that have been perpetrated on me in the footprint realm have mm. been the best learning experiences uh-huh. of, of what the, uh, the real ones actually look like, you know, so these people, you know, the guys who did the LB tracks or whoever did the London, which I still don't know, um, th- they've actually given me a stronger conviction than ever that mm-hmm. these other tracks in the data set are in fact real based on what they did. They did it well, but at the end of the day, when you know what you're looking at, you can see that they actually tried to create a real print very poorly. It just took me a while to figure that out because at that point I'd never really studied that. So, And they increased your skill set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just they makes the real you, ones stand out all the more strongly. Yeah, They made you a better Bigfooter. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Now, um, what do you guys suggest? Now, I know you're interviewing me, but I'm going to pick your brains because you... No, we're having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't an interview. So, it's a conversation. I great. It's, it's an interrogation. An interrogation. Not again. I am married, you know, so I, 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 do, <laughs> I do get interrogated regularly, so I might not break. Um, <laughs> um, now, what do you guys think? Let's, let's think of the, the British scene here. What do you guys think would be the main three components? And I know we've briefly talked about it here, that researchers in the UK should probably have in their arsenal. So here I am walking out in the woods or wherever I'm going. What should I have in my bag? What should I have on my person just in case I come across some evidence? Well, for me, um, I think the, the top things every researcher should have is number one, most importantly, a notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's the number one thing that field biologists bring out to them. And what should you write in your notebook is everything. You should write the things that you see. You should write about the, some of the things you don't see that you should expect to see. You should write down temperatures, um, the barometric readings, uh, what plants are around, what, what's blooming at the time. Are there any edibles that you recognize? Um, and to go with that, the second bit of ev- the be- second bit of thing that you should bring with you is a camera of some sort because mm-hmm. maybe you don't know what that plant is and you should be taking pictures of it you should be taking pictures of everything that looks unusual you know this isn't the day of film anymore it's not eight dollars every time you develop yeah, 24 no, no. pictures yeah now that we have sd cards and digital photography it's all free so you should be taking just copious amounts of uh of photographs um that to to augment your field notes that you take in your notebook um, and then I guess the third thing, um, I would take probably, well, I don't know. I don't always follow this advice, but I think it's a good idea to go out with a friend. Um, number mm-hmm. one, cause most likely Bigfoots aren't around. Uh, and at least that way you're having a good time out in the woods with somebody mm-hmm. who matters to you. Because if you, most Bigfoot encounters happen when you least expect it, when people are doing other things than Bigfooting out in the woods. So you might as well go out to the woods and do something else mm-hmm. while you're big. To make use of your time, because if you just go out to do Bigfoot stuff, you're going to be very frustrated very fast. Mm. Um, but if you're going out to the woods to enjoy the woods and you have a friend with you, then you're going to have a, a successful trip every time you go. And every once in a while, a Bigfoot might pop by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had my best luck lately just going out there and not even squatching, just camping and hiking. As the stuff I've had the last couple of years, the best action. 
No, I'd, I'd go with that as well. Uh, similarly to you, Bowen, if I used to go out a lot by myself and also at night, and recently I just thought, no, this is this is silly. You shouldn't be doing this for the simple reason. If you could just, you know, have a fall, or fall down a ravine, or break your ankle, or something, or you know, you lose the phone on your battery, and then suddenly you're out in the middle of nowhere, you get lost. Whatever happens, if you've got another person with you, that really is is the way forward, and it is. It can be a little boring by yourself. Now, talking about um, walking out in the woods by yourself and, and looking for Bigfoot can be a frustrating encounter. As I say, I started as a, a lake monster guy. And I've been to you know, Loch Ness and Windermere and I was at Lake Champlain just before I met you guys uh, last year for a week. Now, lake monster hunting is like it's like watching paint dry. <laughs> you know? yeah. you just get used to sitting there for hours and hours and hours and looking at water is it kind of i don't know if you remember the loading screens on those old sinclair zx computers when you used to stick the tape in and that little you know flutter would come up there oh yeah yeah if you look into that water long enough there's ripples that's just what you see and it, you get that kind of water blindness but i i used to love it just sit there on the edge of the lake and watch for hours and hours and hours and hope to see something and you never do or you hardly ever do yeah, the, the only thing I ever saw, uh, as far as that goes, I mean, I've lived the whole life. I'm a surfer, diver, fisherman. Mm -hmm. On, the, you know, I, I look out my house and stare at oh, the yeah. ocean. The thing I saw was we were filming Finding Bigfoot at Lake Kinsua and uh, Man-Made Lake, back in Pennsylvania, and we were filming a boat scene where we were going. We were flying. It was a real windy day. It was mm -hmm. probably 18-inch white caps, um, blowing about 35. There was a helicopter filming us from above, then a chase boat filming us from the side, getting shots of us. And we're supposed to be pointing, and you couldn't really hear much. And I see this, uh, it looked kind of like the color, it wasn't scales like a sturgeon. It looked like a like a California sea lion kind of color, but even maybe a little, I think it kind of goldish brown. Uh -huh. kind, of, kind of looked like a goldy brown gray. I can't describe it that well, the coloring. Wow. Because I, uh, there was a little bit of sh uh, glimmer over there, but it was going and cut through the through the chop and it was going fast. And I was looking at it, looking at it, and I saw probably at least a twelve foot section of it. Wow. And it was yeah, and it was it was moving. It was moving fast. And I was trying to we were all pointing, fake pointing anyways for the cameras, you know, like act like we're all excited. Mm. I was and I was yelling at these guys, look, look, look. And then they all think they all saw it, the last the flash I saw of it. Like Cliff got a little look at it, the fish jumping around it and all that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see the actual thing that was chasing the fish, but what I when I looked over there, um, I'm guessing it was I don't know 250 yards or so. I I, I don't know. Wow. The distances are are tough, you know. But uh, what I saw was a very uh, not a wake so much because a wake would be a trailing V-shaped thing behind mm -hmm. a boat or whatever. But picture uh, a barge or something like that pushing water in front of it. Um, wow. And of course, I didn't see the, the barge part. I just saw water being pushed by this some a, yeah. a really large creature that you saw. Yeah, it, I, don't, I didn't see the creature itself. So yeah. I, I, I mean, just Bobo, you the, saw the, the 12 foot section. I mean, if you're seeing a section that's 12 feet, this is yeah, a really large animal. Yeah, there was, yeah. A, there was a, a wake being, not a wake, but a, a, a surge of water being pushed by something underwater there. But what really struck me were the fish. Um, there were these fish. I'm guessing that they were carp at this point because they were they seemed to be quite large. 
I would guess probably two to three feet long. And that's very, like very standard carp sort of size. Cause these things get into the lakes and just grow real big and eat everything else. And they were just jumping and jumping and jumping in front of this, this surge of water, um, which is a defense that fish do, you know, they jump mm-hmm. out of the water because then whatever, whatever larger fish underwater is chasing them. Suddenly these fish are no longer there and it confuses them for a second. And so that's a defense. And these, these, there are probably a half a dozen or so, I'm guessing three to eight, um, of these big carp or whatever jumping, being chased by something that was surging underneath the, the, the surface of the water. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. You know that that reminds me of a sighting that took place here in um, a place called Salton Cove in Paynton, which is um, just on the the coast of Dorset, I think, in 2010. And people thought a Nessie-like creature, about you know, about 10 or 12 feet long, maybe a bit longer, chasing mackerel around in the bay there, and they were jumping, leaping onto the shore to get away from the animal which was quite significant and um, actually saw the animal come out of the water and rest upon a a sort of seaweed bank, this sort of large or flipper turtle-like thing with a long neck. Um, And it's, yeah, it was chasing fish. And they've been seen doing things like that a lot of the time. Do they have alligator gar in that man-made lake by any chance? I mean, it would be a huge gar if if it was one. But did you see a fin of any kind? No, there was no fin. It was just uh, it, oh. it was like skin. It wasn't like scales. Ah, uh-huh. wow. wow. And it looked rough or very smooth. Or... It looked pretty smooth. I mean, I, there was the sun was off to the left, like and over. The, so there was glare, kind of. But when wow. I I was watching it for a while because it caught my eye. Was I was like, well, that's what it like. It I know I know the water action real well, and mm. and I've seen this thing knocking the the chop down and it's uh, and it's wow. out racing the chop. And then I, I got a glimpse of something and then I saw, I got another glimpse and then I saw a whole section of it kind of like, it wasn't like arching like a hump, but it, was, mm. it wasn't flat either. It was kind of slightly curved, like uh, maybe like a, like a, like a, maybe almost like a sausage kind of. Mm. Mm. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah like it was, a, it was a, like bend. Yeah, and it, but it was it was fast, and uh, it, I I could pretty much say with certainty it wasn't a sturgeon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they wouldn't be chasing fish anyway, so they will. Oh, they do. Yeah, yeah, everyone. yes. Sturgeon, sturgeon, uh, jump out of the water. In fact, chasing fish. Um, a lot were, of times. I thought yeah, they were up here in the clump. Oh yeah, they they generally are bottom feeders, but um, I, once a year when the shad run comes up the Columbia uh-huh. River here, um, you can go up to Bonneville Dam and if you sit there for like an hour or two, you'll probably see a handful of sturgeon, you know, six oh, wow. to six to like eleven feet long, jumping out of the water chasing these shad run. It's really magnificent. It's, oh, it's but that's ridiculous. amazing. It shows what I know about sturgeon behavior. But we don't actually have any native sturgeon here anymore in the UK. Um, I, because of the changes in in the rivers and the um, uh, the weirs and dams that were put in, I think from the early 1900s they haven't been around in our um, inshore waters. So it's it's a very strange thing. I would love to see like once. I mean, I was probably aware I was in Loch Ness in um, early 2019 after a, a sighting that a military historian had made. Uh, his name was Ricky D. Phillips. He writes military. I think it was an Amazon number one bestseller or something. And uh, he was there at Fort Augustus, and there's this river, River Oich, that comes off of the lock. And he took a great picture of this. It's been nicknamed the Beakosaurus, this kind of long neck coming out of the water with this 
beaky kind of head on it. Um, too big to be a bird. But you know, anyway, I was there and I, I sat there day and night for like three days, <laughs> hoping it was my third time at Loch Ness as well, hoping to get a glimpse. I know you guys have been there too, haven't you? When you did your, your shoot uh, here in the UK. We're experts. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're there once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, when you look at it, we look at it compared to something like Lake Champlain, you know, it's a tiny body, body of water comparatively. I mean, in, in its length and width, anyhow, it's very deep. Um, but that whole place, Scotland, you're right, 31,460 lochs and lochens in Scotland, you know, and there's your three elements, but, you know, food, cover, water throughout the entire country of Scotland for either... Uh, Bigfoot-like creature, or for we like beasties, and I, I just think it's the British Isles. It's yes, it's a small country, but not if not if you're walking, you know. Right. It's only small on the map. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just small you, to look at as a country know, from space. <laughs> you'd probably find this interesting. We we spoke, we we met with the search and rescue for uh, was it Ben Dewey? Oh yes, yes. Ben Mc, yeah, yeah, Ben McDewey, yeah, yeah, Ben McDewey, and. Uh, they actually were the team that rescued that guy that about 15 years ago, there was that guy that said he saw a 10 foot tall Bigfoot gray man up there and it attacked his tent and yeah, tore the tent apart. Story. Yeah. That, those guys said that, um, that was total, just him panicking and the storm blew his tent down mm-hmm. and the, uh, that there was no footprints anywhere near him. And they said that he was just kind of, hypothermic and they didn't think anything out of the ordinary happened to that guy there's a lot of tales of people freaking out on that mountain and uh, feeling like they're being compelled to throw themselves off the mountain or seeing shadows and hearing voices and this is the same in most of the British Isles and in Snowdonia where I used to hike sometimes in, in North Wales um, the fog and the clouds come in really quickly you know because it, especially in this sort of mountainous part of the, the Celtic parts of the country where there's a lot of moisture it comes in really quickly, and before you know it, in minutes, you're just blind. You can't see where you're going. You can't see anything, and there's weird sounds and you know, noises from the valley coming up. I think it would be very, very easy to get freaked out. So I think there's something in what they're saying. But I also think that they might have just poo-pooed his story and said, no, don't be stupid. He freaked out on the mountain, and they got stormy. <clears throat> we had to come and get you. So I think there could be that element, too. It's strange for him to think that a big ape-like creature tore his tent to pieces right uh, especially in that time period as well to just come down this is way before you guys had that show and it seems to be um an odd claim for somebody in the british isles to just come out with that that stage i'm not saying it's real but it, uh, yeah, i'm wondering if it could have just been dismissed yeah i'm kind of I'm a little skeptical i think it's it's the best way to be and i for my part i came to this British Bigfoot party quite late and it was only really after reading quite a few sightings and seeing uh, and meeting some witnesses as well. I investigated one recently actually which was um, very interesting but uh, talking to the people and, and having you you know what it's like when you speak to somebody and they're having that earnest um, experience when they're reliving what happened to them you can see it on their face and when I get that I'm like well you've definitely seen something yeah, right. Who am I to tell you it, it wasn't that? You know, there's, I know there's enough space. I know there's enough prey. I know there's enough isolation because as a population of 65 million people, we don't actually inhabit much space in the country. So who am I to say? I'm not out there walking in the dark into all of these arid and isolated places. Could be. 
Um, I've never had that experience, that's for sure. Uh, neither with that or the Lake Monsters or anything else. Um, I do know people have seen the big cats, and that seems to be the most viable one, of course. Because you need a little, you need a little more moneymaker, and then you'll tell people what they did and didn't see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you get you get Matt on, he can tell me what I see. That's fine with me. Um, you know, you guys have had a, this big experience. You've done this amazing show for quite a few years now, and you're, you're moving on to do more exciting and different things from here on in. But that's that's going to give you a real perception about you know about what is valid and what is not valid for for some time to come. You know, we, it's hard to dispute that kind of experience. Um, you've, you've been given an overview. You've, been, you've seen the scale model of the Bigfoot scene, right? Right. Yeah. So it, to me, it's interesting, and I think that that's valid experience to be passed on for this stage here in the UK. <laughs> I suppose that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it is because you 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 have you've got the overview. You see how the model works now, so you can apply that to new situations like this, like the UK. And it's valid to me to know what your opinion is, because then I can say, well, these guys have got experience. Let's apply these principles to what we're um, receiving as reports here, and see if they stand up. Yeah, you know, it's worth noting, uh, just in the UK, I do have two sighting reports on my own personal database from mm. the UK. Um, I don't publish my sightings. I, I think Matt and the BFRO have a good handle on uh, publishing sightings. I don't see any mm. need to duplicate it necessarily. Um, and as you can tell by the way I talk, sightings are just kind of down down the list of what I think is important for Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. um, they, they're a good starting point, but they're not the the goal in themselves. You know, they they help you get to the next spot of actually obtaining yeah. some sort of evidence. But yeah, I do have map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A good a, good, a jumping off point point I think. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I do have one, uh, from a, a place up, it's called Gartkosh. Do you know what that, what that is? G-A-R-T-C-O-S-H. It's up no. in Scotland somewhere. And then, uh, there, another one, uh, Cupar, C-U-P-A-R, um, again, up in Scotland. Um, okay. so I have okay. two reports, 1995 and then 2005. Um, I, I got Adam Davies when he was still living over there mm. to go speak to one of the witnesses and he found them very compelling. Okay. Um, but again, these are things are seven feet tall, you know, hair covered, basically running across the road, very standard road crossing sightings. Um, nothing really stands out about them um, for the most part, except There's that they're in Scotland. There are a lot of road crossing sightings in Scotland. Uh, what that jumps to mind is um, in Lochore in 2016, 1am, uh, there's a woman driving home along the road that runs along Lochore. And she sees what she described as two wild men hunting a deer. And there's a few sightings of them hunting deer. She saw a deer running across the road, followed by a large, tall, hairy man-like creature, eight feet tall, and then a similar creature that was two feet smaller than the larger one, but looked the same. And their eyes glowed in the lights of the car, which I thought was quite significant, you know, with mm -hmm. that animal-like eye shine. Another one, uh, sorry to just rattle them off. It's, this is a, a favorite of mine because of the um, one of the significant details. And this is the Five Roads Roundabout in Scotland, uh, near Fife. And a, a guy is driving early in the morning again, and he sees a large, hairy, like, ape-like creature around seven feet tall, steps out in front of his car. He brakes, turns to look at the car, with the eyes again shining in the headlights, and makes off into the forest. He must have the window open or something. He says there's an unpleasant odour in the air after the creature leaves. I like that aspect. You know, that, that gives me something that's Bigfoot-ish. Well, again, stuff happens. Stuff mm. happens over there, whether uh, how many of them are real or not. We don't know, of course. 
But I, I mean, maybe I'm just being an optimist. Maybe I'm being naive. I just, it doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't, my, my gut, and this isn't scientific at all, but my gut tells me that not, there aren't that many dishonest people going out of their way to report things that are weird and could do damage to their own reputation. I would agree with that. I think it's, it's a conservative country. It's, um, it's a strange thing to go and report. There was a photo in 2015 uh, by a lady, what was her name? I forget. In fact, I won't mention her name because she probably wouldn't like that. But it made the papers and it was um, it was in Arundel in Sussex here. And she was walking her dog in the forest. The dog ran off into the trees, outruns what she said was a hairy ape man. She snaps a quick picture. Very blurry. But the only picture I know that's perhaps valid of some kind. And you see this creature running with that sort of um, arms in front of it with that hunched over kind of run you see sometimes. And the face seems to be hairless, but it's very blurry. She's obviously just got a phone out and quickly snapped something. I tried to contact this woman several times and, and get her to talk about it. I think once the, the newspapers had happened and she'd got all of that negative attention, she just wasn't interested, didn't want to speak about it anymore. And who can blame her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Who can blame her? Man, this has been a pretty good talk. British people can't close conversations. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can. Up, y'alls. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Take care. <laughs> no, but, but, uh. but it's, it's so interesting. And, you know, back in the day, Dr. Grover Krantz wrote that the more places, the more species that might be out there, the less credible the subject seems to everybody else. But Dr. Krantz was working under the, the old paradigm that, um, you know, the one species hypothesis where only one species of hominin can probably exist in the planet mm -hmm. at once. But now uh, in, the, in the light that uh, – under the new light basically of the many species of hominins, you know, relic hominoids uh, existing at, concurrently at the same time and actually same place uh, together throughout history, it makes more sense that Bigfoots or Bigfoot-like animals would be – spread worldwide, basically. Um, they're smart. They're, we are smart. We are mobile. We, that the hominin family, we adapt readily. We go where there's the food, you know, and the habitat and the water, just like everything else. So maybe there is something going on in the UK. And I'm there, I'm very thankful that there is a small and dedicated group of, um, adventurer researchers, um, in, in the islands over there doing the work that needs to be done. Otherwise it will remain in myth forever. But per, if there is something there, I'm confident that you guys will come up with something, some evidence, and propel this forward. If not, Cliff, we could get in touch with some of your, your former detractors and, and just fake a couple of prints, I think. Anyway, you know, <laughs> we've got to get some evidence in. But no, I, I thank you for that, seriously, on, on a more serious point. And I, um, you know, I would do hope to, um, to at least find something worth uh, reporting. Uh, for the many cryptids, if anything is going to be found here next, it will be the big cats. I think they are they are a few years away, but uh, from being proven to exist in great numbers in our country. And then my next bet after that is is hopefully Nessie. You know, I was thinking the other day after watching James Cameron's uh, Challenger Deep with his special sub he took down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Let's just call James and get him over here. That thing would yeah. hit the bottom of the lock in seconds. Um, 750 feet. Let's just get some serious scientific investigation of all of these things. And maybe that is going to be my, my focus for the next few years to try to trying to entertain and um, uh, enlist scientific help to research some of these these reports and, and find some of these creatures that we may or may not have living in our country.
Sounds good to me. Get on it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, shoot, Andy, we appreciate you getting on with us. Yes. Well, fantastic, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Toodaloo. So, Cliff, I mean, when you talk to Andy, it really gets you thinking, like, did we blow it when we were over there and we had a, we really were in some Squatch Habitat and just didn't believe it? Uh, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. And when you listen to somebody like Andy, he's got to walk away saying, you know what, if this guy if this guy thinks there might be something there, then maybe there is because he was willing to say, yeah, no, this stuff is nonsense. I don't think this stuff I'm giving it 50, 50 chance. He's not one of these, uh, wide eyed, you know, arm flailing believers chasing every story and saying, Oh, that's true too. He's right. willing to write stuff off, you know? And, and when you, he's clearly, a, a, a he takes a very sober scientific approach to things. And if he's saying, no, there's, there's actually stuff over here. There's enough to go on. They keep the question open. Then I think that's probably got to be enough for any of us, unless you have other firsthand experience that contradicts it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, when we were there over in the UK, when we got to Scotland, we were thinking, man, they could be here. But then talking to those Scottish people up there, they, I mean, convinced, no, no, it's all, it's all nothing. Yeah. At the same time though, you know how, like, uh, um, uh, I don't know, there, there's a, there's a certain air that some people have, and I'm not saying Scottish people in general have it. I'm not stereotyping like that, but I think that the, some of the individuals that we're talking to, they are the mountain men version of, uh, you know, uh, of Scotland. They yeah, know they the, yeah, they, they know the routine. They're search and rescue dudes. They've been out in the best and worst of the weather, et cetera. Um, and those types of people, um, whether no matter what continent they're on, tend to be very confident in their assessment of the outdoors, um, whether they're right or wrong about stuff. Right. You know, Bigfoots can't be real because I've been hunting and fishing in British Columbia all my life and I've never seen anything, you know, that sort of and like, all right, well, that's your experience, but that's not necessarily what the truth may be. Um, and right. I think I kind of got that from those guys too. Maybe there is something there, but you know, maybe that, uh, that one particular, uh, case that they're involved in, maybe there's nothing there and they, they saw it. I didn't, I'll, I'll go with them on that one. But if they're anywhere in the UK as a home base, Scotland's gotta be it. Yeah. You know, cause that's the one thing that throws me is that, I mean, we were in England and we went to the largest forest there with Neil and the, when you look at the setting database for reports in UK, there's, there, there's not like a concentration, like you'd see like on a map of North American sightings, like you see them all in these places, random, like in the South and, you know, it's just kind of scattered. There's not like a concentrated area you'd expect. Yeah. But, and, and I only have two reports, so there's not enough data for me personally to say much about it, but I do think it's interesting that both of my reports are from Scotland. Right. Also, we really want to thank Blue Microphones with these Yeti pros they gave us for our podcast. Absolutely. Makes, sounds pretty good. Sounds amazing. I mean, because uh, we're using just standard Skype. Everybody has Skype, but uh, I think that we sound majestic, if I say so myself. <laughs> Very regal. <laughs> the ki- yeah, the kind, of, uh, the kind of majesty that can only come through a Yeti. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> all right, Cliff. Well, I guess uh, for all the listeners out there, if you have any questions you want me to follow up with Andy, we got Bobo's Fab Five follow-up questions. So just put them down in the comment section and we'll get to the five best ones. Yeah. We're looking forward to those. All right, Cliff. All right, man. You enjoy yourself down there in California. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Later. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. Thank you.